0: Hi listeners, today's episode is a reminder that you can blame everyone else for your problems, but things won't get better until you start looking in the mirror. Take accountability for your actions. You can take all the credit in the world for the things that you do right, as long as you also take responsibility for the things you do wrong. It must be a balanced equation. In the 18th century, there was something that spread across Europe and eventually made its way to America called puerperal fever, also known as the black death of childbed. Basically what was happening is women were giving birth and they would die within 48 hours after giving birth. This black death of childbirth was the ravage of Europe and it got worse and worse and worse over the course of over a century. In some hospitals, it was as high as 70% of women who gave birth who would die as a result of giving birth. But this was the Renaissance. This was the time of empirical data and science. And we had thrown away things like tradition and mysticism. These were men of science. These were doctors. And these doctors and men of science wanted to study and try and find the reason for this black death of childbed, and so they got to work studying, and they would study the corpses of the women who had died. And in the morning they would conduct autopsies, and then in the afternoon they would go and deliver babies and finish their rounds. And it wasn't until somewhere in the mid-1800s that Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes, father of Supreme Court Justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes, realized that all of these doctors who were conducting autopsies in the morning weren't washing their hands before they delivered babies in the afternoon. And he pointed it out and said, guys, you're the problem. And they ignored him and called him crazy for 30 years. Until finally somebody realized that if they simply washed their hands, would go away, and that's exactly what happened. When they started sterilizing their instruments and washing their hands, the black death of childbed disappeared. My point is, the lesson here is, sometimes you're the problem. Take accountability for your actions. You can take all the credit in the world for the things that you do right, as long as you also take responsibility for the things you do wrong. It must be a balanced equation. You don't get it one way and not the other. You get to take credit when you also take accountability. Nelson Mandela is a particularly special case study in the leadership world because he is universally regarded as a great leader. He was actually the son of a tribal chief. And he was asked one day, how did you learn to be a great leader? And he responded that he would go with his father to tribal meetings And he remembers two things when his father would meet with other elders. One, they would always sit in a circle. And two, his father was always the last to speak. You will be told your whole life that you need to learn to listen. I would say that you need to learn to be the last to speak. I see it in boardrooms every day of the week. Even people who consider themselves good leaders, who may actually be decent leaders, will walk into a room and say, here's the problem, here's what I think, but I'm interested in your opinion, let's go around the room. It's too late. The skill to hold your opinions to yourself until everyone has spoken does two things. One, it gives everybody else the feeling that they have been heard. Gives everyone else the ability to feel that they have contributed. And two, you get the benefit of hearing what everybody else has to think before you render your opinion. The skill is really to keep your opinions to yourself. If you agree with somebody, don't nod yes. If you disagree with somebody, don't nod no. Simply sit there, take it all in, and the only thing you're allowed to do is ask questions so that you can understand what they mean and why they have the opinion that they have. You must understand from where they are speaking, why they have the opinion they have, not just what they are saying. And at the end, you will get your turn. It sounds easy, it's not. So a friend of mine and I, we went for a run in Central Park. The Roadrunners organization, uh, on the weekends, they host races. And it's very common at the end of the race, they'll have a sponsor who will give away something. Apples or bagels or something. And on this particular day, when we got to the end of the run, there were some free bagels. And they had picnic tables set up. And on one side was a group of volunteers. On the table were boxes of bagels. And on the other side was a long line of runners waiting to get their free bagel. So I said to my friend, let's, let's get a bagel. And he looked at me and said, ah, that line's too long. And I said, free bagel. And he said, I don't want to wait in line. And I was like, free bagel. And he says, nah, it's too long. And that's when I realized that there's two ways to see the world. Some people see the thing that they want, And some people see the thing that prevents them from getting the thing that they want. I could only see the bagels. He could only see the line. All the great leaders, everybody from Martin Luther King to Steve Jobs, every single one of them, those with the capacity to inspire, they all think, act, and communicate the exact same way. And it's the complete opposite to the rest of us. Where the rest of us start with what we do, these great leaders, those with the capacity to inspire and and lead great change, all of them, always start with why they do what they do every single organization on the planet even our own careers always function on three levels what we do how we do it and why we do it Um, what we do are the products we make the services we offer the things we sell how we do it are those whether you call it your your unique selling proposition or your proprietary process or whatever you want to call it it's the things that you think make you different or special stand out from the crowd But it's this concept of why we do what we do, this purpose, cause, or belief that drives every one of us. Why the company exists in the first place. We don't need another one of whatever you're selling. You know, there's plenty. But why do we need you? And it's not because of how you do it differently or what you do, there's something deeper there. It was the very reason why the company was formed. When organizations start with why, the response they will get from people who believe what they believe will be visceral it will be deeply personal and in the emotional part of the brain it will be hard for people to explain why they are so drawn to southwest airlines or harley davidson or apple they'll talk about oh it's the design it's the quality it's the service but in the reality it's deeper than that it's in the part of the brain that controls behavior but not language the best they can sum up is i don't know i just love it but the reality is it actually is one of the things that helps them define who they are Apple is able to inspire loyalty amongst customers and employees, and shareholders for that matter, because the way they view themselves is different than the way most other computer companies view themselves. Most other computer companies define themselves by what they do. They make computers. And everything they try to do is in an effort to improve upon that thing. Add more RAM, add more speed, make it blue. Apple defines themselves by why they exist, to challenge the status quo. You know, power to the individual, think different. And everything they say and everything they do is to advance that idea. So in the mid-1980s, uh, a theologian named James Carcy wrote this little book called Finite and Infinite Games in which he defines these two kinds of games. Uh, finite games, which have known players, fixed rules, and agreed upon objectives. There's always a beginning, a middle, and an end. The objective is to win the game. And then there's infinite games. Infinite games are defined as known and unknown players. You don't necessarily know who all the other players are. The rules are changeable, you can play however you want. And the objective is to perpetuate the game, to stay in the game as long as possible. We are players in multiple infinite games every day of our lives. There's no such thing as being the winner in your marriage. There's no such thing as winning global politics. And there's definitely no such thing as winning business. Finite mindset is everything is about this transaction, this listing. An infinite mindset is, I may win or lose this game, I may win or lose this transaction, and there'll be another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. And the goal is not to win this one. The goal is to be better and better and better and better. Let me give you a real life example that sheds some light on what I'm talking about. I spoke at an education summit at Microsoft. I also spoke at an education summit at Apple. At the Microsoft summit, the vast majority of the executives spent the vast majority of their presentations talking about how to beat Apple. At the Apple summit, 100% of the executives spent 100% of their presentations talking about how to help teachers teach and how to help students learn. One was obsessed with where they were going. The other one was obsessed with their competition. At the end of my talk at Microsoft, they gave me a gift. They gave me the new Zoom when it was a thing. This was Microsoft's response to the iPod. And this little piece of technology was absolutely incredible. It was beautifully designed. The user interface was intuitive and very simple to use. It was really brilliant, I have to say. So at the end of my Apple talk, I was sharing a taxi with a very senior Apple executive, and I decided to stir the pot. I couldn't help myself. I turned to him and said, you know, Microsoft gave me their new Zune, and it is so much better then your iPod Touch, to which he said, I have no doubt, and the conversation was over. Because the infinite player understands, sometimes your competitor has the better product, and sometimes you have the better product, and sometimes you're ahead, and sometimes you're behind. But there's no such thing as best or first or beating your competition. There's only ahead and behind. And the reality of an infinite game is you're actually only competing against yourself. That the objective every single day is how do we become a better version of our own institution this year than we were last year? How do we improve the quality of our culture? How do we improve the quality of the way we provide the service that we claim to be providing? How do we improve ourselves? That is the main point of being an infinite game. Because at the end of the day, we don't have the same metrics as everybody else and we're not even necessarily playing to the same ends. We've all had the experience where one of our colleagues got a promotion and we got upset, we got angry. We got angry at somebody else's success. Think about that for a second. Why couldn't we share in the joy, right? What is it about them that's being revealed in us? That's the problem. Comparison is the deadliest thing we can do to ourselves because we will always come up short. All it does is exaggerate all of our insecurities. It's fun and and, and exciting to try and beat our competitors but to, to have to face our own weaknesses every day, that's exhausting. It's much easier to direct all of that discomfort and anxiety we have about competitions and our weaknesses at others. But the problem is if we become so obsessed at winning, sometimes we do things that are quite unethical. It's like being a runner in a race when we're obsessed with winning in a race. We may trip the other, the other runner. We may trip the other competitor. And yes, we will win the race. But we're still a slow runner, and the problem is, in this infinite game, there's another race and another race and another race, and it never ends. When we have competitors in business, we adopt this mindset of needing to win or needing to beat them. The problem is, this is not a finite game, there's no such thing as winning. A worthy rival is another player in the game that is worthy of comparison, that in some way, shape or form reveals to you weaknesses that you have that are opportunities for you to work to improve yourself. You get to pick your own worthy rivals. You can have many of them. They can be entire companies. They can be individuals. They don't even have to be in your industry. But there are people that you respect. You don't have to like them, but you respect that they are better at things than you are, and it shows you where your opportunities to improve are. And remember, in the infinite game, the only true competitor is yourself. And if the game of an infinite mindset, if playing with an infinite mindset is a game of constant improvement, what better way to discover your weaknesses than from those who are better than us at so many things? To be organized for the infinite game, it takes courage because we're gonna be swimming upstream in a world that is very finite driven. And it is incredibly difficult to have the courage to stand up to all of the pressures in our lives that are telling us to stay finite to advance ourselves beyond others, to make as much money this year as possible, to be the best, to be number one in all these artificial rankings with arbitrary ratings and arbitrary time frames. You know, the pressures on us are overwhelming from Wall Street or our own egos or from internal incentive structures or our bosses, whatever it is. The pressures are overwhelming for us to play the finite game. And so how do you stand up to massive external pressure? Courage. And courage is something that comes from relationships. You know, it's external. The absolute confidence that someone will be there for you in a time of need is what gives us courage to be there for other people when they need it. There are days we're going to doubt ourselves. There are days we're going to get knocked in our ass. There are days that storms are going to rise. And we have to have people who say, I got your back. You need to do this. We need you. The world needs this. Keep going. Which all raises the very interesting question, what does it mean to live an infinite life? Clearly, our lives are finite, but life is infinite, and we are simply the players in this infinite game. And in every other infinite game, though we don't get to choose the rules of the game, we do get to choose if we want to play, and we do get to choose how we want to play it. In the game of life, however, we don't get to choose if we want to play. Once you're born, you're a player. The only choice we get is how we want to play. We can choose to live our lives with a finite mindset to advance our own careers at the expense of others, to try and outdo all of our friends, make more money than any, everybody else we know, and accumulate as much power as possible, and when we die, we leave it all behind. Or we can choose to live with an infant mindset, which is to commit ourselves to see that those around us rise, to see that those around us have experiences that they cannot get anywhere else. And isn't that sort of the, the point of an infinite life? To leave this world in better shape than we found it? To leave the companies that we work for in better shape than when we started? To leave our families stronger and better capable than, than they can do without us? You know, isn't, isn't that what it means to live an infinite life? That we can live, literally live on beyond our own lives?